All right, and today we're going to just be in Luke, chapter 13, looking at verses 1 to 21. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then begin our lesson. Father God, we do thank you for uh, life. We thank you that you are our creator and our redeemer, that you have saved us, Lord, from the penalty of sin, death, that you can and do save us day by day from the power of sin, and that one day in your presence we will even be saved from the presence of sin and how we do look forward to that day. Father, now I just pray that you would help all of us to focus on this serious lesson of what you have to say about the need to repent of our sin. And Lord, we do pray for a turning back in our nation to this important part of the gospel message. So many churches are not teaching about the important part of salvation that one needs to repent of their sin, to turn from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't just believe and continue on in sin. There has to be that repentance. And Lord, I just pray that you would use me this morning to magnify your Son who alone deserves the glory, for we pray in his name. Amen. Well, in the last several verses of Luke chapter 12, the Lord Jesus had urged the people to whom he had been speaking in that very, very large Judean crowd uh, in his, what I guess we could call, five warnings discourse that they were to to seek reconciliation with the judge. He had asked them a question, if you look at verse 57 of Luke chapter 12, basically asking them, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Why can't you people judge for yourselves what's right? Discern, you know, be discerning instead of always listening to your supposed uh, spiritual rulers. And then he went on to tell them that if they had been facing a prison sentence, they would certainly have done everything in their power, power, everything possible, to hire a lawyer and find out how they could avoid judgment. That's what he was basically saying if you look at verse 58. Well, even more importantly... Since they all were facing divine judgment, shouldn't they likewise do all they possibly could do to avoid the sentence of divine judgment which was coming upon them? Shouldn't they search the scriptures for themselves? Shouldn't they take his words and his warnings to them seriously and judge for themselves that he was indeed their advocate for the defense? He was their God-sent lawyer. He alone could keep Israel from marching to judgment if she would only listen to him instead of to her leaders. Well, in response to what he had just said about making peace with God, the judge, he's called the magistrate in verse 58, before it was too late, some people in the crowd thought uh, about a recent event, something that had just in their contemporary times occurred. And it was the slaughter of some Galileans in the temple by Pilate's soldiers. And they, they, these people who brought this matter to Jesus's attention, of course he had known about it, but they supposed that the sudden deaths of, of those men was an example of what the Lord had been talking about in his warning of coming judgment. They figured these guys, these Galileans who had been murdered in the temple while they were in the process of worshiping and offering their sacrifices, that they received their horrible deaths as part of uh, divine judgment. You know, because of some higher level of sin in their lives. However, in pointing to others, the Lord's listeners missed his point totally about they themselves. 
both individually and corporately as a nation. They needed to individually and corporately repent of their sins. And this is the main subject of our lesson today, which is why it is entitled The Need to Repent. It's Lesson 102 in your books. As we, first of all, are going to consider the first nine verses of this chapter, we're going to see that the Lord used two current perishings is what I'm calling them, two current events of that day, tragedies. One of them I just mentioned was Pilate's slaughter of some Galileans, and the second tragedy, now that one was mentioned by some people in the crowd. The second tragedy or calamity, we could call it, was mentioned by the Lord himself, and we see that in verse 4, it was the fall of a tower. The Tower of Siloam, it was uh, apparently a tower that was being built on the southeast corner of the wall of Jerusalem, somewhere near the pool of Siloam. Now that tower doesn't exist. It didn't exist, you know, in our, when archaeologists dug up everything. It wasn't there. But the reason it wasn't there is because it fell down. And in the process of falling down, it crushed and killed 18 people. And I guess they decided that that was a sign from God, so they didn't rebuild it. Anyway, so we're going to be talking about those two parables, I mean, um, calamities, along with yet another parable, which is called the parable of the barren fig tree. And the Lord used these things to symbolically picture Israel's need to repent of her fruitlessness. She was barren. She wasn't bearing any fruit for the kingdom of God, for his glory. In other words, she didn't really have any faith. She didn't have belief in his son and then in verses 10 to 17 now these are the verses we may not get to we probably won't get to but um, he used the incident surrounding the miraculous healing of a woman who had been bent over in crippled suffering for 18 long years probably her her spine had been fused have you ever seen someone like that? I remember near, long time ago when I was growing up, there was a lady that lived near me. And poor thing, she could not stand up straight. I mean, she was just as bent over as you could be, always having to look down at her feet. So sad. But uh, that's how this woman was. And, um, of course, she, um, the Lord healed her in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. <laughs> of course, and, and upset the ruler of the synagogue. And he's the one who was uh, the faithless hypocrite. But anyway, in, in that miracle of healing that bent over, crippled lady, we have a picture not only of Israel's barrenness, which is represented by the parable of the barren fruit tree, but of her walk with the Lord being in a crippled state. Israel was definitely in a crippled state, spiritually speaking, at the time of the Lord. Satan, you see, through his dupes, the religious rulers had been very successful in causing Israel to be in a bent-over condition of pain from all of her rules and her regulations that had, put, uh, that had been put upon her by her spiritual leaders so that her yoke wasn't easy as it should have been, and her burden was not light. And the only hope that she had for release from her suffering under the bondage of her sin and guilt was not ever going to be found in the hypocritical, faithless rulers, such as the ruler of the synagogue. Look at him for a minute in verse 14. Since I won't get there, let me just quickly tell you about him. He's, he stands in great contrast to the woman. Now, the woman's infirmity was due to Satan. She was suffering, and we're told that it, that it was an infirmity of um, 
Satan in verse 16. The Lord says, this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound. Just like Israel's crippled, bent-over condition was a doing of Satan. But uh, the ruler, st- but as soon as she got healed, she glorified the God, a God. And she was in the synagogue. By the way, this is the last time we ever see Jesus Christ in a synagogue. It was right here when he healed this crippled woman. And never again do you hear of him, read of him being in a synagogue. But anyway, let's look at the ruler because he stands in. He, he's the one who represents the faithlessness of Israel. It says, and the, this is right after the woman was healed and could stand up straight and she glorified God. Then it says, and the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Wasn't even happy for that poor woman. Can you imagine? Because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work in them, therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. See, he was just all, he himself was bent out of shape. (laughs) The woman could stand up straight, now he was all bent over because Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. Just incredible. But anyway, so so we're going to be looking at two subjects, the need to repent of fruitlessness. Are you bearing fruit for God's kingdom? I hope so. And also the need to repent of faithlessness. I hope there's no one in here who is just totally, even without faith, such as this ruler of the synagogue. Well, let's begin by looking at two current perishings of that day. And for this, we'll read verses 1 to 5 of Luke chapter 13. It says, There were present at that season some that told him, Jesus, of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those, now here's where he brings up the second calamity, or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Notice how he says that twice. So that's the subject here. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. An event that was still very fresh in the minds of the Jewish people listening to the Lord's words of Luke chapter 11 and then again Luke chapter 12 had to do with this recent slaughter of some Galileans who had actually been in the temple offering their sacrifices when suddenly, unexpectedly, they were murdered by some undercover Roman soldiers. We are actually told that their blood mingled or flowed with the blood of their sacrifices. Now, although we do not know who these murdered Galileans were, it has been suggested that they were followers of a a man called Judas of Galilee. Now you can actually read about Judas of Galilee in Acts chapter 5 verse 27. He's in the scripture. His real name was Judas Galanita and he was a rebel. A lot of Galileans were known for being hotheads. He was one of them. He was a rebel, and we can kind of empathize with him and side with him because he renounced Caesar's authority. Although as Christians were to submit to the authority, the powers that be, he didn't. And he refused to pay tribute to Rome. He, in other words, he, he refused to pay any tax money to Rome. Um, and he had a following. He had a bunch of Galileans that followed him. And that's one suggestion. Now, the other suggestion is that these Galileans were just innocent Galileans. They weren't part of Judas of Galilee's um, forces. They were just 
They were Galileans who were maybe thought to have been part of his faction or little sect. But we don't know for sure who these Galileans were, but that's, that's the su- supposition is that they, somehow they were connected to Judas of Galilee or were thought to be connected to him. Well, you, you know who was the Roman governor of Judea at this time? A man you all heard of? Pontius Pilate. And he was the one who was responsible for this slaughter. Now, Pontius Pilate was not a very wise ruler. He was not a very wise man when it came to handling the Jewish people. He was also a coward. Now, we'll get to know that when we study, uh, the t- you know, at the time of the Lord's arrest and as he stands before Pilate, we'll see that he was sort of a weak-kneed, wishy-washy kind of a guy, and he was basically a coward um, and did not do what he knew was right to do. But he was also very insensitive over the people he ruled. Which, if you're going to be a good ruler, at least you should be sensitive to the people over whom you're ruling. But he wasn't. He was not at all sensitive, number one, to their religious convictions, which were the most important thing about the Jewish people. It permeated their whole life, was their religious conviction. For example, on one occasion, he, even though he knew how the Jews felt about idols, you know, that they wouldn't put any, they would never make idols or worship idols, and they didn't even believe in having any graven Im- images. Um, but ignoring that, he had all these banners with Caesar's image imprinted on them. And, you know, and the Romans believed that Caesar was God. And he had those banners brought into the holy city and hung everywhere. Well, what do you think the reaction of the Jewish people was to this? It infuriated them. They were just very furious about it. But his response was that he threatened to kill anybody who protested. You know, just not very wise. Well, I guess he decided he couldn't kill everybody because they all protested. So finally he relented and he did have those banners moved to Caesarea. Well, this situation with the death of some Galileans in the temple may have been one, uh, another one of Pilate's, uh, or I should say due to another one of Pilate's bad ideas. You see, he... He wanted to build a new water system. This wasn't really a bad idea because Jerusalem was always suffering for water supply. Um, But the problem was that he wanted to build this new aqueduct system for Jerusalem with money that had been given in tithes to the temple. So instead of financing the project with Roman tax money, you know, money that the Jews themselves had given to Rome. Why not, you know, use that money to finance the, the new water system? No, he wanted to take money that had been given for God's work and use it. And that's not very smart. That is not very smart at all. So, <clears throat> perhaps there may have been some followers of Judas of Galilee purposely in Jerusalem to not only celebrate whatever feast it was. Now, they were in Jerusalem offering their sacrifices, so it's assumed that this occurred, this slaughter occurred at one of the mandatory feasts. You know, whether it was a Feast of Tabernacles, which had just occurred, or um, um, the Feast of Passover, I don't know, but it was pretty recent, but it was one of the feast days. And perhaps these men 
had purposely come down not only to um, to celebrate the feast, but also to try to stir up anger among the other Jewish people because there'd be Jewish people from everywhere there in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, and they would go around murmuring and telling people, "Let's you know rebel against this. This is wrong." And um, he was a revolutionary. So this may likely have been the situation. And uh, knowing that there could be trouble at the time of the celebration, Pilate very likely ordered um, either temple guard or Roman soldiers to mingle with the multitudes, maybe even in civilian clothing so that people wouldn't see who they were and they could overhear some of the conversations going on. And they would have weapons, you know, swords hidden under their clothing. And they were to deal with any possible troublemakers. But obviously, they went beyond crowd control because these disguised soldiers killed some Galileans who were apparently caught completely off guard um, as they were involved in the process of offering their temple sacrifices and their their blood flowed and mingled with the blood of their animal sacrifices. Now, whether or not this was yet another trap, maybe it was um, a trap to get Jesus, who was a Galilean, and all of his men except Judas Iscariot were Galileans, to um, either speak out against Pilate You know, they brought this issue up to Jesus. Maybe the reason they brought this up is because the Pharisees were behind it, you know, pushing. Tell Jesus about, let's see what he has to say about that recent slaughter of the Galileans. He's a Galilean. He'll probably speak out against Pilate. And then we can run to Pilate and we can have him arrested. Or maybe he'll show sympathy toward Pilate. I don't know why he would, but maybe he would. And then uh, he would be discredited in front of his listeners for his pro-Roman disloyalty. Even if Jesus had showed sympathy toward the murdered Galileans, if he expressed some kind of sympathy toward them, then still the Pharisees would have jumped all over him, declaring that he spoke out against God. Because God was the one who had designed and orchestrated and permitted the murder of these Galileans in order to punish them for their great sin. Remember how we had learned back in John chapter 9 in our study of the born blind beggar that the Jewish thinking of that day was that any unusual tragedy or calamity or a handicap or hardship was the direct result of what? Yeah, divine judgment on, the, on, on those who suffered because of some sin in their lives or maybe the lives of their parents. And this theology had even been hammered into to the, um, to the disciples. I thought I would. Because remember, as soon as they saw the born blind beggar, what did they ask Jesus? Master, who hath sinned, his parents or this man, that he hath been born blind? So the standard Jewish association was to equate calamity with sin. And we see this all the way back to the very first book of the Bible ever written. Now, you know, Job was actually written before the first five books of uh, the Pentateuch. Job is the first book of the Bible chronologically. Um, I don't know if you knew that, but it was written before Moses wrote the other books, even though Moses actually wrote about the very beginning. You know, he goes all the way back to the beginning. But uh, all the way back to the book of Job, one of Job's supposed friends. Now, if you have friends like these guys who needs enemies, but one of his supposed friends, you know, Job lost all of his children, his home, 
his all of his property, his cattle, everything in one day, just all taken out. And uh, so, and then he's covered from head to toe with boils. And one of his friends comes to visit him in the hospital. Now, can you imagine a friend like this? Or can you imagine getting a Hallmark card like this in the mail when you're going through a terrible, terrible time? Here's what this guy said to Job. Oh, my. He says, Job, remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent. In other words, nobody ever perished who was innocent. All your children perished because they weren't innocent. And then he goes on, he says, even as I have seen they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. You're just reaping what you've plowed. You've, you're reaping what you sowed. And then here's, here's the clincher. He says, by the blast of God, they perish. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a lovely card to receive in the mail? <laughs> Love your friend, Eliphaz. <laughs> So the Jewish idea concerning those who were struck down, especially while they were in the temple offering their sacrifices, it'd be like somebody came in right now and murdered me up in the pulpit. They would, they would assume that in such a position like that, in the temple, that certainly you were really being struck down by God for some atrocious, awful sin in your life. And if when you think through their thought process... Because this is the way they were raised from children thinking. You can understand why the Jewish people had such trouble believing in a Messiah who was crucified. You see, crucifixion was the worst kind of death that man has ever invented. It was horrible. The pain and the suffering of, of, of crucifixion. And it even said, you know, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so they thought, how could he ever be our Messiah? He is obviously being judged by God for his blasphemy. Because it never dawned on them that he was suffering all that pain and, and, and suffering that he went through because their sins, our sins, are so horrible and atrocious that he literally became sin for us and died in our place. That never dawned on them. But you can see how they had such a hard time with it. Well, if this had been a trap here, I don't know if it was or not, but if it was a trap sparked perhaps by the Pharisees, it was yet another total failure, as all the traps were, because Jesus quickly moved the issue to, uh, you know, of this Galilean massacre to a much higher level. And he did so by completely, beautifully avoiding any mention of the politics of the situation and even though the people who had brought this issue to his attention and of course he knew all about it because he's omniscient god and he had probably also heard about it he traveled everywhere you know he had heard about this slaughter so they didn't really need to bring it to his attention so that's perhaps why it was a trap but anyway even though the people who brought this issue to his attention had not expressed their own thoughts about it which was that they were thinking the Galileans killed were great sinners. He, and they didn't express that. They just told him about the incident. Yet he did address their idea that those who had been murdered were guilty of some terrible sins. In fact, he didn't, if you notice, he didn't even discuss with them at all the sins of the Galileans. And of course, the Galileans were all sinners because we're all sinners. But it wasn't that their sins were worse than anybody else's. Uh, but he didn't even uh, he didn't address the issue of their sins. He didn't even address the issue of Pilate's sin. 
You know what he addressed? (laughs) It's beautiful. He addressed the sins of the people who were speaking to him. He said to them, as he usually did in the form of a question, he said, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things? Is that what you're thinking? I know you are. And he says, I tell you, no, nay, but except, and here's where he pointed his finger at them, his audience, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now, what he was doing here was important. It was very important. He was teaching the universal need for repentance. Tragedies, calamities, hardships, handicaps are not always, not always the result of divine punishment, as the Jews supposed that they were. Sometimes they're um, chastisement on God's own, as with Job in order to to prove something that we didn't even know about that was going on in the heavens, you know, between him and Satan, so that sometimes they're for God's glory, which ultimately Job was to glorify God. Same thing with the man born blind, right? He was born blind so that God might be glorified. Sometimes um, uh, these things happen for God's chastisement. Sometimes it's uh, Satan doing it. As with a woman bent over, it says it was an infirmity that Satan had caused. Sometimes it's... um, It is divine judgment. Sometimes calamities and tragedies are divine judgment. Sometimes they're just because of the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world. But it is, no matter what they're, you know, what causes them, it is wrong for people to play God and pass judgment on others. There are all these different reasons for why people suffer, but all of them stem, basically, they all come down to the fact that we do live in a sin-cursed world. The important issue that Jesus wanted the people here to consider was the matter of their own souls. Stop looking at others. Think about yourself. You know, when you hear a sermon, don't always think about, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this sermon. <laughs> think about yourself. His point, the Lord's point, was that, the men, the, that men cannot rightly judge other men's sins by their sufferings. And what they're going through. We all have enough to deal with in just trying to judge our own hearts. Have you ever found how difficult that is? Just to judge yourself and examine yourself? It is sometimes it's really difficult to be honest with yourself, to really know yourself. And, and uh, um, you know, what really are my motives for doing this? It's difficult. We have enough trouble doing that and not needing to go around judging other people. But he wanted the people in the crowd that day, and he wanted you and I and everybody else who reads the scripture to look within and to consider our own spiritual condition before God. Shouldn't the sudden deaths of those Galileans who were not expecting to die that day, especially in the temple, while they're offering their sacrifices and thinking, you know, they're doing what is right. They weren't expecting to die that day. And shouldn't the terrible tragedy of the sudden death of 18 people who were crushed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? You know, they weren't expecting to die that day either. And what about the people who died on that bridge that collapsed up in uh, Minnesota not too long ago? Those people, just like you and I, they got up in the morning, they washed their faces, they combed their hair, they brushed their teeth, they got in their cars to go here or go there and never expected to die that day, right? I was crossing the Chesapeake Bay Bridge this week when I went up to Virginia Beach to take care of my daughter and 
and sick children. And I was thinking about that. Do you hardly ever cross a big bridge anymore without thinking about that, do you? Uh, or what about the students at NIU, Northern Illinois University, where I went to school, uh, who were in geography class. Now, I took geography. I know the building they were in. I took geography when I was in college. They were just sitting there. It was near the end of the class. They weren't expecting to die that day, were they? Terrible. And what about all the people who died? We always think of this, of course, in the terrorist attack on 9-11. And those who are swept away in tornadoes and hurricanes and... Um, tsunamis and who die in um, unexpected automobile accidents or are innocent victims of crime etc etc shouldn't these calamities of life teach us to be prepared to face death ourselves rather than try to judge why other people are suffering or why they're having a calamity you know because next time it could be us we never know. We do not know. The issue that Jesus was trying to drive home, and that's why he stated it twice, is that except we repent, we shall all likewise perish. And that's one of the foundational truths of Christianity. The wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. And guess what? We're all sinners. All of us have sinned. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory. Not only have we inherited this Adamic sin nature from our forefathers, from Adam and Eve, we've inherited it. But each of us, if in their place, would have done the same thing. Sooner or later, we would have rebelled against God because we're all sinners. All of us have sinned. Uh, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The question regarding the tragedy and the calamity should not be, why do some people suffer so? Why do some people die unexpectedly like that? Why do some people, why are some people murdered? Why do some people have to suffer and die so tragically, so seemingly needlessly, like those young people at Virginia Tech? You know, why, why, why? But that shouldn't be the question, why do some people suffer? Rather, if we have even a hint of the holiness of God compared to the sinfulness of man, the real question should be, why does anybody live? Why does anybody live? Because, you know, without the grace and mercy of God, all of us are sinners. We should all die. Why, did Adam, why were Adam and Eve not killed the minute they sinned? Because of God's grace and God's mercy. It's, that's the only reason that we have our next heartbeat and that we can take our next breath is because of the grace and the mercy of God. Two things are absolutely necessary for salvation. We must repent and we must believe. Now I'm going to take you on a little journey regarding the issue of repentance through the scripture, okay? And I'm going to tell you afterwards why I'm going to hammer this issue into you today. <laughs> this need to repent. The, this was the message throughout the Old Testament. God, through the Old Testament prophets, always talked about the need for repentance. For example, one, one scripture is in Ezekiel 18.20. God said, I will judge you everyone according to his ways saith the Lord God repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions so iniquity shall not be your ruin 
That's Old Testament. That's just one example. I could give you many examples. It was also, the message of repentance was also the message of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Remember what both of them said? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was also the message of the apostles in the gospel accounts. Remember when Jesus sent them out two by two? You know what they were to do? It says, and they went out and preached that men should repent, Mark 6, 12. It was not only the message of the apostles in the Gospels, but it was the message of the apostles throughout the rest of the New Testament. In the epistles, for example, even in Acts. Let me go to Acts first. In the book of Acts, uh, Acts three nineteen for one, it says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. I think that was Peter speaking. It was also the message of the apostles in the epistles. Well, that's, you know, who's the wife of an apostle? An epistle. <laughs> but... <laughs> So the whole New Testament teaches teaches a repentance. For example, in uh, for 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. And then another verse you all know, 2 Peter 3.9, that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. You see, without repentance toward God and faith in his Son, no man can be saved. And repentance is, is part of the message from the very beginning. I just took you all through the, the Bible, from, from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. The nature of repentance is very clearly spelled out for us in the Scripture. It begins with a person's knowledge of his sin. Now, I always go back to the Beatitudes. We always seem to go back to Matthew chapter 5, where the Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes. Remember what he said? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about a person's understanding of their poverty of spirit. In other words, their spiritual bankruptcy. A person must first understand that apart from God, we are spiritually helpless and hopeless. We are, there's nothing we can do on our own to get our way into heaven absolutely nothing so we a person must first of all understand their spiritual bankruptcy before a holy god then secondly remember the second beatitude blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted second thing after a person recognizes that apart from god he can do nothing he's spiritually bankrupt he mourns over that spiritual condition Now, it's not a mourning over somebody who's died or something. It's talking about mourning over your own state, your own condition, and realizing that you can't even go a day without sinning, without thinking a bad thought or doing something or saying something wrong, having a wrong motive, or even you get into the sins of omission. Not a day can go by and you mourn over the, how am I ever, ever going to know that I can get into heaven and then what's the third beatitude blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth no one who is proud is ever really born again you know you you have to understand your spiritual bankruptcy mourn over that sinful condition and that makes you humble doesn't it it surely should if it's genuine you don't stand proud before god and say like that Pharisee, you know, God, you're really doing great to have a man like me. (laughs) 
I tithe and I do this and I do that. Boy, you really got things good now that you got me on your side. He didn't go away justified. You know, I think that, um, that, that probably repentance is best seen by that other man, the publican, who was next to the Pharisee. You know, Pharisee said, oh, sure, I'm glad I'm not like him. But repentance was seen in that man because you know what he said? He said, God, be he was smiting his breast. I imagine he was looking down, smiting his breast. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in the Greek, it's the sinner. First of all, he realizes his spiritual bankruptcy. He recognizes what a sinner he is. Secondly, he's mourning. You know, he's beating his breast. He's mourning over that sinful condition of his. Third, he's humble, isn't he? And he's the one who went away that day justified. He's the one who went away saved, not that proud Pharisee. Now, some people will say, well, if you add repentance to salvation, you're adding a work. No, you're not. Repentance is not a meritorious work. It is something that goes on in the inside. It is an inward response of the mind and heart. It is not a work at all. It is part of salvation. It, repentance and faith go hand in hand. Tragically, now here's the reason I'm telling you all this. I think even more tragic than the murder of those Galileans who were worshiping in the temple when they were suddenly murdered. And more tragic than the fall of the Tower of Siloam on those 18 people is the fact that repentance is not something that is being emphasized today in the presentation of the gospel message. As Luke, for just one example, said that it should be. Now, here's Luke's uh, version of the Great Commission. Here's what it is. Luke 24, 46 and 47. He says, Thus it is is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Great commission, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to all the nations of the world. And I believe that because repentance is not being taught in the majority of Christendom today, well, sadly, the gospel isn't being met, uh, you know, preached. A lot of churches, you don't even hear, except ye be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. A lot of churches, you don't even hear that, how you can be saved. But add to that, a lot of churches that do preach the gospel aren't including this matter of repentance. And that is why we have more than an 80% drop-off rate of supposed Christian converts. You know, you hear about these great big huge uh, crusades and revivals and, and you see all these hundreds of people go forward and supposedly get saved. And then if you look a year or two up the road, more than 80% of those people who went forward don't have anything to do with church, don't have anything to do with Christ. There's more than an 80% drop-off rate. And the reason is because far too often a cheap gospel message is being preached. A gospel void of repentance, which is not the gospel at all. Instead of exhorting people to repent, much of even evangelicalism. Oh, it's terrible. 
even evangelicals, fundamentalists, Bible believers are uh, asking the unsaved to just, quote-unquote, accept Jesus when the real issue should be over their concern about Christ accepting them. True conversion involves repentance. It involves more than just making a decision for Christ and saying a little prayer. It involves a life-transforming change of heart, which involves genuine faith in the person and atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It involves true smiting the breast repentance over your sin, you know, wanting to turn from your sin. It involves surrender. He's the Lord of your heart, not you anymore. You come off the throne of your heart. He comes onto the throne. And it involves a rebirth unto newness of life. Are you a different person than you used to be? There was a before Christ, there was a B.C. Catherine. And there was an A.C. Catherine, an after Christ. There's a big difference. I'm not the same person I used to be. I was born again. Do you know of a time in your life when you were born again? There should be a difference. There should be a change. It would be, for example, A.W. Tozer uses this example, these two of these examples, which I think are great. He says, it would be like, the, the, like Israel in Egypt when they were under bondage to the Egyptians. If, if Israel just accepted the Passover blood sacrifice, you know, how they were supposed to put the blood on the door of their homes. Okay, so they did that, and they accepted the blood sacrifice of the lamb on their behalf, and the angel of death passed over them, but they stayed in bondage in Egypt the rest of their lives. No newness of life. They lived like they always did. Or, he gives us another example. He said it would be like the prodigal son, accepting his father's forgiveness and yet continuing to live the rest of his life in the pig pen. You see? Far too often, far too often today, people are being told to get saved by taking on Jesus. And they're being told that they will then experience a life of joy and peace and love and abundance and uh, health and wealth and healing, etc., etc. And these people are not being told anything about their need to repent of their sin, to understand the concept of mourning over their sin and their brokenness over their sin and their desire to turn from their sin to the Savior. Uh, They don't hear anything about um, denying themselves, taking up their cross and following after Christ. They don't talk about, they don't hear anything about, well, you may have to forsake your mother and your father and your sisters and your brethren because they may not understand. Like in my family, nine years, they wouldn't even talk to me. My brother and sister still do not talk to me. You may have to forsake because they don't understand. But who comes first? Christ. They don't understand about knowing him and knowing him in the fellowship of his sufferings. They don't understand that if the world hated him, they will hate you also and persecution is coming. How many are going to be willing to suffer persecution for his sake? So they're told, oh, accept Christ and everything will be a bed of roses. Those are lies. It's lies. And so people say, oh, okay, that sounds great. Yes, I'll accept him. I want him. And I want all that he can give to me, for me. It's not like, what can I do for him? Thank you, Lord. I give you my life for what you did for me. 
I'm willing to I'm willing to give up anything. Comfort creatures, whatever. I'll go wherever you want me to go, Lord. What you did for me, saving me from judgment and hell forever? But you do see that? No. Okay, I'll take him on. What he can do for me? And if there's no brokenness, if there's no repentance, if there's no smiting of the breast, so to speak, of their, you know, because of their helpless, hopeless situation, they're not genuinely saved. And sooner or later, therefore, as the statistics show, we want we scratch our heads and we wonder what happened to so and so. They supposedly got saved. Where are they? Oh, they're out there living with somebody. You know, they're just. They never got saved. But even more tragic, I think, is that many live out their lives under the false delusion that they are saved when they really are not. How many people think because when they were seven years old, they went forward in church and prayed a little prayer and that that makes them right for the rest of their lives and that they're saved and that they're going to get into heaven. But you know what it says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven twenty two. One of the most tragic verse. Well, it is the most tragic verse in all the scripture. Many who think they're going to go to heaven are going to stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment and say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and didn't I do that for you? I was in a Christian church. I, 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 I mean, you know, it's one thing, ladies, for Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and atheists and agnostics and people who have nothing to do with Jesus and know it, for them to one day stand before Jesus and find, hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. But for people within Christendom who think they're on their way to heaven and who call him Lord, Lord even, to hear him say one day, depart from me, I never knew you, to me is the greatest tragedy that there ever can be. I feel so responsible for all of you because you, you come here and you listen to me every Tuesday. And I don't want any of you to find yourself one day in that position. Because I think I'll, in one way or another, I'm going to be held accountable for that. Because I need to tell you that you need to repent of your sins. Except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so, honestly evaluate yourself today. I beseech you with all of my heart. Evaluate your own spiritual condition. Have you had that time in your life when you know you truly repented? Uh, Look at, are you bearing fruit? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Are you bearing fruit for his kingdom? Do you really understand and acknowledge your sinful condition before a holy God? God is being made so casual today. He's not that kind of God. He is a holy, righteous God. And before him, no man can stand. I mean, we just fall flat on our faces. We're dust compared to him. Do do your sins cause you great sorrow? You know, there's hope that you truly are saved if as you grow in your spiritual maturity, it's not those big sins that bother you anymore. It's the little ones. Oh, I should have done this. I should have witnessed to my Aunt Sophie before she died Saturday. I shouldn't have gossiped about so-and-so yesterday. It's the 
little sins that start to really bother you. Um, Have you ever come before God in earnest mournfulness over your sins and your desperate need for his forgiveness, which is available only because of the shed blood and the death of his righteous son and his atoning death on your behalf? Do you hate everything that is evil? You know, God hates evil. Now, he doesn't hate the sinner, but he hates that which is evil. Do you hate evil or do you flirt with it a little bit? You know, what do you, what do you flip, what channels do you flip through on the television and maybe stop and hesitate at sometimes? Do you really hate evil? Um, These are such serious questions for every one of us to ask ourselves and to really, really evaluate ourselves and to understand um, if we truly are saved or not, because nothing less than eternal salvation are at stake here. This is the most important thing I could ever talk to you about. Um, Well, let's go back to our text. Um, Perhaps those who had told Jesus about the murdered Galileans were Judean Jews. I imagine that they probably were. The ones who told him were Judean, because that's where he is. He's down in Judea. And maybe they were trying to make some kind of a negative point with him because of the fact that he was a Galilean and all his men except Judas were Galilean but notice how he immediately very cleverly and very wisely brought to their attention a second calamity of their time one that involved the sudden death of who men that dwelt where in Jerusalem Okay, you guys want to point the finger at these naughty, bad Galileans. Well, what about that calamity that happened with those men of Jerusalem who were Judeans? You see what he's doing? We can't point the finger at any one nation or group of people and say, well, they're suffering because they're uh, Iraqis or they're Americans or whatever. Because all things come alike to all, the scripture says. That's Ecclesiastes 9.2. The rain falls on both the just and the unjust. And it was so clever the way he did that. Us to know, to realize that the Lord's words here were very prophetic with regard to the nation of Israel. Except she repent, she would likewise perish. Sudden destruction was coming upon the nation, particularly upon Jerusalem, which is Israel's headquarters. Just as the Romans under Pilate had mingled the blood of the Galileans with the blood of their sacrifices, so would the Romans under General Titus Vespasian mingled Jewish blood with the blood of their sacrifices. Do you know that the Roman siege of Jerusalem Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. And the temple was utterly destroyed, burned to the ground. Not one stone remained upon another. But that that siege by the Romans began at the time of the Passover. Did you ever know that? It's amazing. Think about it. Who did they crucify on the Passover? Jesus. And now here... At the time of the Passover, that's when Titus put his whole army around the city. Nobody could get out. Those who tried to get out were crucified. In view of every, there were more than 500 people on, on, well, even more than that, crucified, the ones trying to sneak out. But that began at the time of the Passover, which means that there were at least 600,000 to 1 million extra people in the city at that time. Both Galileans and Judeans. 
You see, except ye repent, Israel, ye shall likewise suffer. Your blood will also be mingled with the blood of your sacrifices at the time of the Passover. And did you know that when they finally got into the city, when the Romans got into the city and they they destroyed the walls, that many of the walls came tumbling down, well, all of them except a part of the Wailing Wall, came tumbling down and all the towers, there were hundreds of towers, they came crashing down. And do you know that many people were literally crushed to death by the falling walls and towers? Like the ones who were crushed by the fall of the Tower of Siloam? Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. His words were prophetic and they literally came true. Well, we've got about 15 minutes to get into the barren fig tree parable. Let's look at it in verses 6 to 9. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. All right, we'll stop right there because the next part is about that poor little bent over woman who we will not be able to get to. But make sure you do read about her in your books and then do all of your homework questions for this week. All right. In this barren fig tree parable, Jesus spoke again about a certain, Luke always uses that word, a certain man who planted a fig tree in the middle of his vineyard, which meant that he had a very special purpose for this fig tree. Vineyards. Now think about it. This is a great vine yard, you know, vines everywhere. Um, vineyards were, were planted in order to provide income. But a solitary fig tree in the middle of a vineyard? Obviously, that wasn't planted for income. He wasn't going to pull those figs off and take them to the marketplace. That fig tree was there for other reasons. Why do you think it was probably there? Because the, the um, owner of the vineyard particularly liked figs. Do you like figs? Have you ever plucked a fig off of a fig tree? Oh, yummy, yummy, yummy. I can't believe people who won't even try it because we have fig trees where I live. My, we have three huge fig trees. And, you know, I just wait until they finally get ripe. And you got to get them right at the right time. If you don't, the bees get them. But right at the right time, there is nothing more. Mm, just melts in your mouth. It's biblical food, so of course it's good. <laughs> but this man loved figs. So the vineyard was the object of the man's care, but the fig tree was the object of his affection. Symbolically, of course, the vineyard speaks of the world. The whole world is the vineyard. And in the midst of the nations of the world, God planted his chosen nation, Israel. Israel is represented by the fig tree. And many times in the scripture, she is represented by a fig tree. Now, he expected that he would receive fruit from her that would bring him great delight. However, when he came looking for fruit, what did he find? He didn't find any. Even when the tree had reached its full time of productiveness. Now Israel should have, by the time of Christ, you know, she should have had some fruit for God. She should have recognized him in his son and, and borne fruit. 
especially after her Messiah walked in her midst for three years. And yet she was still spiritually barren. Because of her barrenness, the owner of the vineyard said to his vine dresser, the one who took care of his vines, he said to him, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this tree and find none. Cut it down. Why should it cumber the ground any longer? You know, why should it take the nutrients out of the ground uh, that I need for the vineyard? Cut it down. For the three years of Jesus' public ministry in Israel, she was given more than adequate evidence as to his identity. And yet, as with this parabolic fig tree, she did not repent of her self-righteous pride and believe on him and thereby produce fruit for God. She remained barren. You know, what did she do instead of bearing fruit? She blasphemed the Son of God and she wound up crucifying him. More than any other nation that has ever existed, including the United States of America, and we have been very, very privileged, but God had privileged Israel with opportunities to know him and to serve him by bearing fruit for him. He had every right, therefore, to expect fruit from her. So it was his right to determine to cut her off, to deprive her of her special privileges. But the vine dresser interceded on her behalf. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know who the vine dresser was? Symbolically, he was the Lord Jesus himself, and he interceded between God and Israel. He, um, he, he beseeched the, you know, the vine dresser owner, he, he beseeched his mercy by saying, Lord, let the fig tree alone this year also, till I can, you know, dig, I'll dig around it, and I'll put fertilizer on it, and then if it brute, bear fruit, okay, good, well, but if it doesn't, after this extra time of grace this next year then you can cut it down you see what he was doing he was asking for an extended period of grace for the fig tree for Israel now some Bible expositors see this extra year as representative of the last year of the Lord's ministry the fourth year of his ministry you know he his public ministry was how many years long Three and a half. I can't very well do a half finger. Well, I sort of can, but three and a half years long. So uh, it was during that fourth year, which he never finished out because they crucified him in, in the middle of it. But it was in that fourth year that Israel revealed that she definitely was not going to be uh, bearing any fruit for God because that's when she said, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. So she would bear no fruit. So the mercy of God, even though far-reaching, he's long-suffering, yet he does, you know, he does judge. And Israel had to be cut off because she did not bear fruit and should have, and she was cut off in 70 A.D. Uh, let me skip some things so we can... Oh, and by the way... Um, did, you, did any of you wonder about verse 59 of Luke chapter 12? Where it says, I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last mite. A lot of people have had problems with that verse. If they consider what the Lord had just been saying as having been spoken to unbelievers... They say, hmm, you're going to be in prison until you've paid back the last mite. That sounds like some place called purgatory. That's where the Catholics use this verse and others for their doctrine, their unbiblical doctrine of purgatory. That you stay in a place like purgatory until you've paid back what you need to pay back. 
So you can have trouble if you see him speaking to unbelievers. You can have trouble if you see him speaking to the church in the in that um, section of Luke chapter 12. But when you understand that he's speaking no to Israel, yes, she had to be cut off and suffer his divine judgment until she paid back that last mite. And that's what she's still doing, ladies. She is still paying back the last mite. God cut Israel down, but... That doesn't mean he terminated his program for Israel. Did you know that? He is not finished with Israel. Don't believe this replacement theology that will tell you that the church has replaced Israel, that all the promises meant for Israel are now meant for for the church. No, no, no. God is not finished with Israel. My goodness, if he couldn't, wouldn't keep his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and David, what makes us have any assurance he keep his promises to us, the church? Of course he isn't finished with Israel. Israel is the epicenter of his whole program. There's still another seven-week period of Daniel's 70-week prophecy left to go. He is not through with Israel. Um... Her fruitfulness, fruitlessness may have caused her branches and her leaves to have been cut off, but guess what? There was no damage done to her root structure. Do you know that if you cut a fig tree down at the bottom, you know, where the, where the trunk is, that it will grow back? I know this by experience because one of our fig trees just took off and it filled up so much space that we couldn't park in this little area of our driveway where we like to park our truck. And uh, so my husband went out there with a chainsaw and cut it down level just about with the ground. Well, guess what? It came back bigger and better. <laughs> and today it's there. We, are, we, we have to move over our truck. So we, we just forget it. You know, we're not going to dig it. The, the vine dresser didn't dig up and burn the root. The root was still there. She was, Israel was only set aside while God produced fruit for his glory through a new people, a people made up of both Jew and Gentile. And who is that people? The church. But the church didn't replace Israel. The church, if you'll read Romans chapter 11, was merely grafted on. We have just been grafted on. God isn't through with Israel. The root will spring to life again. Actually, I think we see evidence of that today. Ever since May 14th, 1948, Israel, miracle of all miracles, Israel. Can you imagine a people being dispersed to all the corners of the world, coming back together in the land that God had given to Abraham? It's a miracle that Israel is back in the land today. Total miracle that the Hebrew language was resurrected from the dead. No other language that went out of existence was ever resurrected again. And that was prophesied in the Old Testament, too. It's just amazing. It's a miracle. She's, she's coming back to life. There are leaves again on the, on the fig tree. No fruit yet, but there's leaves. There is hope of a tree, it says in Job. There is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. In the parable of the barren fig tree, the owner of the vineyard made an agreement with his vine dresser. He said, okay, if after an additional year the tree still remains fruitless, you can go, it can be cut down. It was to be cut down. And it's interesting that in fulfillment of that parable, it's interesting to find that the Lord Jesus 
just days before he was crucified, actually on Monday of the Passion Week. Okay, Sunday of the Passion, Sunday began the Passion Week. It's what we call Palm Sunday. That's when he rode into Jerusalem on the very day Daniel had prophesied and officially proclaimed himself to be Israel's king, her Messiah. That was Sunday. Well, he went that night, he went back to Bethany, two miles away, and he spent the night with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He got up early in the morning. Martha was apparently not cumbered about to make a big breakfast. She'd learned her lesson. She didn't make a breakfast. The Lord and his men left to go to Jerusalem, two miles. So they're halfway to Jerusalem, and they're in this little village called Bethpage. And he sees a, a fig tree on the side of the road, and it's all leafy, you know, got, has all its big leaves on it. And he gets up there expecting to, to find a big, juicy fig that he can have for breakfast and that his men can have for breakfast. And he gets there. Of course, he knew this ahead of time. He gets there, and what does he find? The fruit tree is barren, no fruits, symbolic of Israel. You know, even after that extended period of grace, she's still barren. She's going to kill him in a few days. She's still barren. And so in an uncharacteristic act of judgment, what does he do? He curses that fig tree. And the disciples the next morning on their way to Jerusalem again see that same fig tree and they're just amazed because it's completely withered away. You know, I might go a little bit over, but in, back in um, Genesis 3-7, way back in Genesis, we learned that Adam and Eve tried to cover their naked shamefulness following their sin of disobedience with what? Do you remember? How they tried to cover their shamefulness, their sin, with fig leaves. Israel had a lot of fig leaves at the time of Jesus. Uh, She had what we could call a fig leaf work system that she had self-righteously created in order to try to cover up her nakedness, her barrenness, her fruitlessness, her sinful rebellion. She needed the Lord's covering for her sin, which would be as he did with Adam and Eve by way of a perfect sinless blood sacrifice. Except that this time it would not be an innocent sacrifice of, of an animal substitute. It would be what? The once for all sacrifice of God's only begotten sinless son, the lamb of God, the one and only lamb of God, which came to take away the sins of the world. But Israel rejected him. And as with the cursed fig tree, she too withered away. She was, after 70 AD, she was dispersed to the four corners of the world. The Jews were scattered all over every nation of this world for the past, for for 1900 years until, amazingly, miraculously, the root structure started to come back. There were, the fig tree was there and it had leaves on it again in what year? I mean, the miracle of miracles, God said he would bring her back and he did. May 14th, 1948, amazing miracle. The Hebrew language was resurrected from the dead, which was also prophesied in the Old Testament. We're living in exciting times. Now there's another parable that the Lord gives in the Olivet Discourse which we have a little book on if you don't want to wait until we get to there in a couple of years. But Matthew 24 and 25, the greatest prophetic sermon ever preached. 
ever, ever, ever. It's a jet tour through the book of Revelation. And in that, in that um, sermon, he talked about the parab- a parable of the fig tree. He said, When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when sh- ye shall see all these things, and all those things spoke of the aforementioned signs of the Lord's second coming, he said, when you see the leaves on the fig tree, you know that all these things are even at the doors. Now, I told you, we don't look for signs. We, hear, we listen for a sound. <laughs> we look for the Savior. But, in the, in the, uh, but we can see some of the shadows of those signs. And we can see that Israel is back in the land, that the fig tree has sprouted to life, that there's leaves on the fig tree again, aren't there? So we can know that the time is at hand. It's like Ezekiel's Valley of the Dry Bones. You know, uh, Ezekiel in a vision saw all these skeletons all over the valley in Israel. And, And as he watched, the skeletons stood up and they came together. You know, I always think of the song... Head bone connected to the neck bone, neck bone connected to the... <laughs> but the, the skeletons came alive. I mean, well, they came together. And then he saw um, muscles and sinews and, and, and flesh and skin come on the skeletons. And they were moving around. But there was still no life in them. So that's what Israel is today. Israel's a fig tree with a lot of beautiful leaves on it, but still no fruit because she's still in unbelief she's she's a skeleton back you know walking around but she still hasn't had the breath of life breathed into her she hasn't been born again she still is in unbelief but one day the fig tree will produce fruit but only after the most severe pruning that she has will ever encounter and israel has encountered some severe pruning but it says in Isaiah 18.5 that God, with his pruning shears, is really, 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 really going to prune her. And it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. During the seven years of the tribulation, after the, the church is raptured, Israel, uh, God goes back to his program with Israel. He fulfills that last week of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. He prunes Israel. And at the end of the pruning, she looks up, sees the Lord at his second coming, finally mourns for him. You see, there's that repentance. She finally mourns for him because she recognizes her sinfulness in having crucified her Messiah. She recognizes him as the king of her king of kings, her Messiah, and she believes. And she bears fruit. The fig tree bears fruit. Isn't that the wonderful end of the story? And it's all true, and we, all, we see it coming to pass. We see history shows us all of this is true. It isn't just make-believe. I'm not up here just telling you little stories that entertain. It's all true. It's wonderful, isn't it? All right. Father, thank you for this, uh, this study that you have given to us. We thank you for the depth of your word. But most of all, Lord, I want to just pray that every one of us As we go home today, that we would think the rest of the day um, of our own spiritual condition and do a very serious examination of ourselves to, to look back at that time, if there was a time when we did 
repent of our sins, turn from our sins in genuine smiting in the, on the breast's contrition and, and mournfulness and meekness and, and know that without you we could do nothing, that we cannot be saved and that we turn to the Savior. If there was not that time in our lives that we truly know we were born again, born from above with the Holy Spirit coming to indwell us, I pray that we would take care of that most important matter so that none of us stand before you one day and hear those horrific words, depart from me, I never knew you, Lord. Lord, I do pray for every lady here to genuinely be saved. We love you, Jesus, and now we just commit the rest of this day and this week to you, for we pray in your name. Amen.